If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and it's not a couple guys who work in sports this week. My co-host, Gareth Hughes, attending to some family business around the holidays, so we're going to give him a little bit of time off here, but I'm going to keep rolling with the shows. We've got some interviews already in the can to expect over the holidays coming out, not going dark, not leaving you all in the lurch during a season when you might need to pop in the earphones and just get away from whatever's happening in your house and might have a few surprise guests joining me to uh, to co-host. But on today's show, someone whose work I have admired for a long time, Michael Holly. You know him from his appearances on TV over the years, ESPN, NBC, Boston. You know him from his best-selling books, Belichick and Brady, War Room, Red Sox Rule, Patriot Reign. If there's a topic about Boston sports uh, that deserves book form, Michael Holly is going to be on it. You also know him from his show on Peacock with Michael Smith, brother from another uh, big breakout year for them this year. Congratulations on that. But today we're going to zero in on his new book called The Big Three, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and the Rebirth of the Boston Celtics. And I'm going to explain to you why I wanted to talk about this book. Okay, a couple things. Number one, basketball and books just go together, man. (laughs) And I bring this up to Michael in the interview. I've always thought that, you know, the same way that boxing just works in movies, which is why you you care so much more about boxing than you probably should because you just love all these movies about boxing. So you just hang with the sport no matter how much uh, the, the people in it are likable or or not likable. I mean, it, Jake Paul's boxing, okay? And, and yet I still can't give up the sport because I just love the movies of it. It's also the kind of the way I feel about basketball books. There's just been so many great basketball books over the years. So whenever a new one comes out, I'm like always down to talk about it. So Michael and I get into it about, you know, the books that inspired him, uh, the reasons he may have avoided basketball because of that over the years. Uh, you know, he, he loves the sport. It's his number one sport. He, you know, he's covered it uh, up close and personal over the years. So why now? What brought him to this topic to finally take that leap? But here's the other piece on this. All right. I always introduce myself as sports marketer from Chicago. Every once in a while, stories from my work life pop up. I want to tell you a story now that I just never forgotten because it, it just is is just emblazoned in my mind in a way that I, I have a hard time explaining. This was like two days before Christmas in 2009. So the Boston Celtics are coming off of their championship season in 2007-2008 it's the first year of the big three. KG, you know, infuses a new energy to that team. I'm doing some work with a certain sports drink company of that era. 
Uh, I won't give them the free press <laughs> here, but uh, you know, let's just say they had a a uh, several decades old patented blend of electrolytes, carbohydrate, and fluid that you're probably familiar with. Anyway, we go to this ad shoot, and it's gonna be this like wildly high concept commercial. They're doing a commercial. It's like a parody of Monty Python. You can still find this ad online if you want to, if you're hearing this story. I'm on set. I'm just getting like B-roll. I'm getting like interviews with all the kind of athletes that are there while they're trying to film this uh, this huge budget commercial. Now, the athlete roster there is really big. Derek Jeter's there. Usain Bolt's there. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, the NASCAR driver, uh, Misty Bay trainer, Carrie Walsh are there. Alicia Sacramone, the gymnast, was there. Shout out to her. I had to work with her on an NBA behind the scenes of All-Star Weekend where we like never stopped working. <laughs> I think that was the following uh, spring. We're stuck in this huge, crazy place outside Boston where they film movies. It is snowing. It is dumping snow. I am talking like a foot of snow comes down. All of us are worried we're going to be stuck in this uh, in this ad shoot for a week because no one can get out of town. We're all worried we're going to miss Christmas. Everybody's really low. All the attitudes, everyone's tight. Um, everyone's like, you know, tired. There's no energy on this set. Uh, the athletes who already probably don't want to be there, <laughs> uh, they're getting a check. They got other shit to worry about. All of a sudden, they start to get really quiet which makes everyone even more tight and just makes the whole thing like like teeth-clenchingly tense. Okay, but why are we in Boston? Well, the reason we're in Boston is because Kevin Garnett's going to be in this commercial. And he's in season with the Celtics, and he can only show up on the second day of shooting and do a couple scenes, and it's going to be nighttime. And look, he's like a huge part of this, of this ad. Like, he's got... He's basically like the... King Arthur of this Monty Python, this super high concept thing. He comes in and I'm telling you, I have never seen an athlete fill up a space with their personality like KG did in this place. He he just he just is a ray of energy and light and jokes and he walks right in and he's kind of like, I'm here and I'm taking over. So instantly the mood improves. And I was kind of taken back by just how much the other athletes and their 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 teams defer to him. You know, like Jeter, who was as big as anybody back then, um, is sort of like letting KG hold court. Usain Bolt, who, you know, when you picture Usain Bolt, you're picturing dude crossing the finish line, pounding his chest, taunting his competition. I'm telling you, he was like as quiet and nervous to talk to KG. Kept being like, man, like I was interviewing for this B-roll that we had to do, which is like behind the scenes video from the set. And he sees KG walk in and I'm, I'm interviewing him. And he's like, oh man, he's like, Kevin Garnett's like my idol. Like, I'm so nervous to go talk to him. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're like 10 feet in front of people in the uh, whatever meter dash you just won in the Olympics, like taunting them, and you're you're <laughs> you're nervous about walking over to them. I was like, everyone else is nervous to talk to KG. You're like the one guy who probably can. Um. Anyway, so so Kevin Garnett comes in. He's already like boosting the energy here. He gets into wardrobe. He's wearing this ridiculous King Arthur outfit with like a Celtics four leaf clover on the front. And we're shooting these takes 
where he has to just repeat the line, uh, he knows my name, and like be all like weirded out that this guy knows his name. So everyone's just sitting there, and Cage is in the front, and like all the other athletes are behind him, and he just has to repeat this one line. And whenever you're shooting something, you know they're, they're doing like endless takes. KG just has to repeat this one line over and over again. You know, he knows my name. And they're like, okay, no, give me more Regal. He knows my name. He knows my name. <laughs> Finally, he gets so fed up that he just, they're like, all right, next line, go. And they're filming and he just goes, motherfucker knows my name. <laughs> and everyone just erupts with laughter. Okay. And again, it was so funny that they like let him keep doing it. But man, he that motherfucker that he dropped actually made it into the spot. <laughs> like that just shows you the level of charisma that KG had. So, w- with that said, first of all, did make it home on time. I believe I was on the last flight that left Boston <laughs> that uh, date. I think it was the twenty third. Um, I got out of Dodge. I, I don't know how I got on that flight. Uh, me and and uh, Carrie Walsh were on that flight. We were so happy to get the hell out of there. Ever since then, I've always been sort of fascinated and enamored by KG, specifically, because I just think he's the type of alpha of alphas who has that larger-than-life personality that makes every setting he is around more interesting, which is why I wanted to talk to Michael about his book, because I do think there's a lot of that story that is more fascinating than most when you think about you know which NBA stories, which sports stories deserve book treatment. Because you know the big three, they like took off like lightning, and then they kind of went away with just as much bizarre energy and big personalities and infighting and everything else that happened with that with that crew that kind of still lingers and echoes now. Also, look, man. I, I wanted to talk KG acting. I wanted to talk Ray Allen acting. You know, who was better? Garnett in Uncut Gems, Ray Allen in He Got Game. And this is just not sports. I could not have Michael Holly on without asking him about something else, non-sports. So we break down a topic I know you're going to want to hear about, 80s Stevie Wonder. (laughs) That's right. Uh, he gets into Stevie Wonder and I go right to my take on Stevie, which is I defend and will stand for his 80s oeuvre. <laughs> Part-time lover, shout out to that jam. And so we get into Stevie Wonder, what he's been listening to during the pandemic. It's a uh, fun, wide-reaching conversation with someone who's, again, whose work I have appreciated uh, in all its forms over the years in many ways. So go check out Michael on Twitter, online, go Go watch Brother from Another if you've got Peacock and go check out the big three in bookstores now. It was really fun to have Michael on uh, and to, to break down this story. And look, like I said off the top, more interviews coming all throughout the holidays. Already have them in the can. Expect some fun co-hosts. Uh, probably expect to hear from Gareth here, hopefully before the holiday season uh, is over or is too far away. But right now, enjoy our interview with Michael and have a happy holidays. Yo, yo, I'm over here. Yo, Shaq, where you dog, I'm over here. Yo, Shaq, where you at? I'm over here. Get on the microphone and just rip the track. Who the hell is Shaq Attack? You better read the paper. Treat me like this I got a theory about basketball books. Um, you tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. I, I think of books are to basketball what movies are to boxing, and that they just 
tend to fit together really well. Um, when you look at the history of the medium, whether it's you know Jordan rules or breaks of the game or whatnot. And I, I heard an interview with you where, I mean, you've written so many books and it almost sounded like you were kind of putting off jumping into this world a little bit. And I was curious, did I read that right? And, and if so, what, what, what finally, you know, got you motivated enough to, to, or, or ready enough to jump into, you know, going full length on, on this sport, which I know is so near and dear to your heart. No, you read it right. Uh, you read it right. Yeah. I was very, um, I was nervous about it. Uh, nervous about writing a basketball book. You know, I covered the the sport for many years for the Boston Globe and the Akron Beacon Journal. Yep. Uh, love so many great basketball writers out there. And I just feel like that sport, uh, you just got to be ready. It's so, um, you know, basketball is not just about getting the information right. It's about getting it. It's like a basketball game. You know, it's like it's like the rhythm of it, the, the flow of it, uh, the nuance. Uh, and just getting that right tone, striking that right tone. And I, I could always talk myself out of it uh, when I get close <laughs> to a basketball book. Uh, I'm not quite ready yet, but it was just really getting over the fear of jumping into it. And once I did it, uh, it felt good to kind of confront that fear and and conquer it. And so now who knows? Who knows what's going to happen now? <laughs> I'm like, hey, hey, I beat the bully. I beat up the bully. So. <laughs> You talk about that the nuances of the sport. I, I I think the team dynamic is so important, and especially with a a book like this, where it really is zeroing in on the relationship between a core group. Um, what do you think is the key to to capturing the the the, the personal relationships that make great teams not just good on the court, but you know, compelling enough to want to spend hundreds of pages with them? Yeah, I think part of it is the organization itself. You know, the Celtics and, you know, like the Celtics, the Lakers, and even if you look at the, the Bulls with their six championships, mm-hmm. you know, teams that continue to win over and over, there's just something about uh, that franchise. Sometimes it's one player, sometimes it's a player and somebody in the front office. And it's a combination of, of multiple things. But with the Celtics, their history with Red Allenback and, and all the great players, Russell, the Bird, Havlicek, um, I, I just... I was always interested in that ground itself, but then to have a dip in the tradition of the Celtics, right, where they missed the playoffs, the back end of the nineties, I think it was the last seven years of the nineties, they missed the playoffs altogether. And then they got to the point where they were celebrating Eastern conference finals losses. Uh, hey, we're, <laughs> going right, hey, we're going in the right direction. I, I just thought it was interesting when that changed, when, when Danny Ainge came in to make them worse, to get them better. And then to bring in uh, a trio like Garnett and, and Allen to add to Paul Pierce, I, I just couldn't I couldn't resist that. And also Doc Rivers. I mean, you have so many different characters. I mean, that's what drew me. Uh, I, I really could have, uh, honestly, Brad, I could have taken a different approach. I mean, I could have written a book uh, just on Danny Ainge, period. Sure. Uh, and, and leave the big three out of it. Hey, here's the Danny Ainge story, or the Doc Rivers story, or the, or the Garnett story. I just thought it was better just to put them all together. Yeah. And this is a book about transitions um, because you start it, you know, with the origins and really, you know, how the team was built. By the way, I, I will say, does the team, you, you, one of your early chapters is about the uh, the sale of the team. Does that happening in New York mean the Knicks, get, Knicks fans get like at least partial claim to the 08 title? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Get a little bit. <laughs> you know, Knicks, Knicks fans get some credit because even though 
uh, their previous owner, Paul <laughs> Gaston, even though he owned the Celtics. I mean, he's living in New York. He's probably and, and uh, spent a lot of time in Greenwich. So he's probably like a closet Knicks fan anyway. <laughs> and, you know, in the acknowledgments, you say you started this book, you know, uh, seven, eight years ago. And I am wondering, like, with the with the benefit of hindsight, like how how did your view on this? this story changed? Maybe how did this project evolve um, from when you started it? Yeah, I start, it was a completely different book. Um, I, I wasn't even thinking about the big three, even though I, the big three was right in front of my face and uh, I had watched all of their, all of their games, their big moments, their triumphs, their failures. I'd seen it all. It just didn't hit me at that time. And, and part of it was I wasn't ready to tell that story yet. You know, sometimes you can have, uh, you have an idea, and it's not quite the idea. It's not good. It doesn't work out. You know, you doesn't feel right. And and a lot of people will go through that process, and they just they'll just beat themselves up and they'll move on, and they won't revisit it. I I felt that that it wasn't right. The original book I wanted to do, which was uh, just really focusing on the 2012-13 uh, season to see if the Celtics could get one more run at a championship. It didn't feel right. Uh, I did beat myself up pretty good, but I didn't give up on it. I right. knew there was something there. I just didn't know what that something was. And it took this amount of time to figure out, okay, that's what it was. That's what I was trying to do. But it, I wasn't ready to, that story wasn't ready to be told. And I wasn't ready to tell that story. You know, you, you, you know, clearly given your connection to sports in that city, um, the, the amount of reporting you've done in your career there's a lot of the book that feels like, you know, you had a, uh, you know, you were flying the wall for a certain encounter. You were, um, you know, in a room where maybe uh, you could bring additional color to what's going on. And I was just curious, like, uh, you know, not to put you in the spot, but is, is there one or two moments where you had an, like a true inside view of something that in hindsight, once you crystallized it in amber and print like this, you were like, I just can't believe I was there for that. Oh uh, yeah, the, the one that stands out to me is still Carmelo Anthony. Uh, I'm surprised that you know I could I could have been punched. I was so close uh, standing. <laughs> I, mean, I could smell I could smell Carmelo's cologne. Uh, I could smell his breath as he was uh, ranting uh, at the Celtics bus because Kevin Garnett, uh, in his opinion, had insulted him, had insulted his family. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and uh, and he wasn't happy about it, so he. He, he got dressed very quickly after that game. And in Madison Square Garden, you know, I love these old uh, arenas, like old Chicago Stadium was and old Boston Garden was. They're just kind of uh, just, just kind of in the, in the part of the thread, part of the fabric of the city. And if you don't know that city, you can kind of miss the stadium. Like if you don't know New York, like, hey, where's Madison Square Garden? You're standing right in front of me. Uh, you know, it's just like that. The old, the garden and, and the buses are inside the arena and the concourse. And you have to walk around this concourse like three or four times uh, down this winding uh, area before you get to the bus. And Carmelo knew exactly where the Celtics bus was. He was there uh, and, and Doc saw him. He was like, Melo, man, don't do this, Melo. Melo was like, nah, Doc, <laughs> I'm about to get on y'all bus. <laughs> and it's going down like four flat tires. It's going down, baby. And so uh, Doc, you know, was able to defuse the situation. But I was right there for that. It was amazing. But not only there for that, 
But then on the bus for the aftermath, as the players talked about, hey, what would have happened if Carmelo had jumped on the bus? <laughs> it was incredible. So, yeah, there were a few moments like that where I said, well, I'm really fortunate uh, that I'm here and able to witness this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's amazing. <laughs> um, KG, okay, so my I, my experience, I'm more on the um, – uh, ad marketing side of the sports world by by trade. I, I was in an ad shoot in Boston in 2009, like two days before Christmas. So like after the first championship season, but before KG got hurt that year. And it was an ad for Gatorade. And like they had, they brought out a lot of their big guns. It was Derek Jeter, Usain Bolt, Kareem was there, you know, um, Jimmy Johnson and KG was like the alpha of alphas in that room. Every as soon as he came in, all the other stars were kind of lined up behind him. He entertained everybody. He he just filled up the room. Can you kind of describe like I mean just and look, I you know, it's a one time I got to see him, but can you describe the the effect on a team or on even on a city on a on a sports culture when somebody with that level of charisma is at the epicenter, at the heart of uh, of the operation. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you say charisma, I'll say energy and authenticity. Uh, for, you know, love him or hate him, I mean, this is who he is, and this is what he likes. So he likes to bring that energy, brings it all the time, and it is all connected to winning. So it's a strange, it's a strange mix, because uh, he can be as profane and as over the top as anyone <laughs> and he will get your attention, but then uh, he's also as coachable as anyone. And, and as Doc Rivers says in this book, and like if you dropped in, if you didn't know anything about our team, you would think that KG was one of our role players. You know, his, <laughs> his, his, his whole mentality was I'll give you my talent here. Take my talent. You use it any way that you see fit. If if you think the best way for us to win is for me to take five shots and get 25 rebounds, uh, I may not be able to do that, but I'll try. Uh, if you just want me to play defense the entire time, if you want me to shoot the entire time, if you want me to pass, that type of personality, people can talk that. But when you see some, somebody actually live it and, and see how other players and coaches respond to it, is special. And so that's what KG was. The, the, the Celtics, for as long as they've been around, uh, been around since 1946, the beginning of the NBA, but they've never had a player quite like KG. Better Celtics-related acting performance, KG and Uncut Gems, uh, Ray and uh, and He Got Game, and I'll throw in Larry Bird and Blue Chips just for good measure. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to say Ray because he was actually acting. KG <laughs> and Uncut Gems, I'm like, man, um, I don't know. Um, he did a great job, though. He did a great job. That movie, that movie is kind of like him too. Unpredictable, outrageous, center of did attention. Yeah, did that just happen? That that kind of thing. <laughs> is 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 he a, a huge reason why? I mean, look, the the sports landscape is littered with like motivational team philosophies that fall flat. But when you think about like. Uh, Ubuntu and, and how the team kind of rallied around that is, is, is Garnett's kind of you mentioned like his ability to manifest as star or role player or whatever I mean that kind of expresses that exact philosophy is that a huge reason why the team was able to buy into that yeah I think all three of them I think those three stars because they all had something you've got something individually that you want to achieve and you have a and and 
look, a lot of people don't admit it. Not only do you want to achieve it, but you've got a narrative in your head of how it's going to happen. Like, yeah, I want to win a championship. Everybody says, yeah, I want to win a championship. But I want to win a championship. I want to be the guy making the free throw uh, in the last five seconds. I want to, I want to score 40 points in game seven and be the MVP of the finals. Like, it, it's the thing and the way you want to do it. Well, Doc Rivers changed that script a little bit. He said, okay, you're all going to win a championship. And it may not happen the way you want it to. And I think the guy who had the sacrifice the most actually was Ray Allen because his shots were going to go way down. I mean, at times in Seattle, people forget about this, uh, maybe because they forgot the Seattle had a team, but uh, <laughs> at, at times in Seattle, Ray Allen was playing point guard at times. Like he, They just gave him the ball and said, create. You know, and, and we know create, what that means is score. So that year, before he went out with an injury, I think he was up at like 25, 26 points a game. And Doc told him, even before the season started, like, what if you average 15 or 16? Are you going to be okay with that? Can your ego handle it? Uh, if your shots go down, KG, Paul, your shots going to go down. People are going to say it. They're going to say you're struggling. They're going to be wrong, but they'll say it anyway. And that noise is going to be out there. Can you handle all that noise? And they all were able to do that. And I think that's why they, that's a big reason why they were able to win and be secure uh, with the way that they were playing basketball. Yeah. And, and Paul Pierce fascinates me uh, for a number of reasons, but like in the book, number one, I mean, you go into pretty great detail about early in his career. You know, he was a victim of a, a of an assault and a stabbing in a nightclub. You know, there's a surrounding courtroom drama. It did seem like there was a lot of uh, research you had to do to kind of make sure you you had that full story. And you also talk about the trauma that had on him and the effects on his mentality I, it's almost in reading it i was kind of surprised number one how little i knew about or remembered of it beyond just the surface details but also how much he had to overcome to get back fully what was the hardest part about reporting on that chapter of his life oh uh, yeah it's a great question uh brad i mean uh, okay first of all i i need to give credit to I had some incredible i mean just incredible researchers uh working uh for me and working with me and uh, one of them in particular, um, uh, a, a guy named Trevor Ballantyne. I mean, Trevor, I, at times, I, I put in the acknowledgments, I said I had to keep him out of the Boston courts. I said, okay, not today, Trevor. You can't go to court today. <laughs> because he just kept going and digging and digging and digging. And he said, oh, I got one more thing. And a lot of the stuff had been sealed for many years. And he, he made the request at the right time, so he was able to get some um, some documents that we just didn't know about. So what stood out to me was I was uh, I had just covered that uh, covered the team a couple of years earlier. I remember it, but I didn't know the depth of of just how bad it was, and a lot of people in Boston didn't. So that was really jarring to me that this story we we reported the story, everybody had you know did a good job of reporting based on what we knew and what we, what we had access to. But now being able to go back into those files and look at some of those transcripts, it was much worse than was originally reported. Paul Pierce is a very fortunate man. He's fortunate to be alive today. Um, and he should always be grateful for the Batis, Tony Batie, Derek Batie. They, they truly did. They saved his life uh, because everybody in the club thought he had just been in a fight. So just for example, Brad, uh, after the immediately after the fight, there's some club security took him to a back area and they gave him a towel and ice. 
because they thought it was just fists. <laughs> right. And he took off his shirt and he took off his shirt because he, he was sweating, but he took it to dab the sweat. But once he took off the shirt, uh, he, he saw that how bloody it was. So there was blood. And then the, the Batiste figured out that the severity of the situation, they just drove him. They didn't wait for any kind of ambulance to come. They, they drove him to the hospital. And once they drove him to the hospital, and this is straight out of a movie, uh, they said, okay, this is not over. He said, hey, is he going to live? He's going to be all right? They said, yeah, yeah, we can save his life. Okay, fine. They went back to the club. Everybody had, had gone then. He would go back to the club, and they're and they, <laughs> they asking these security guys, hey, what happened? They're getting stonewalled. One guy said the magic words to them. He said, hey, we only make $50 a night bouncing. So Tony Batiste put out 100 to here. <laughs> now, now, get, now, okay. Now I pay for two nights. Give me some information. Give me a name, and that was a key to the case because uh, that security guard told him exactly like who it was and who that person was associated with, and that helped them uh, get at least some conviction. They didn't get every conviction uh, that they wanted, but they were able to they were able to get some at least partial justice for what had happened uh, that night. Yeah, it's a fascinating chapter in the book and I think sets up a lot of the Pierce journey. I, th- I mean, the one thing about Paul that I notice quite a bit these days, I-, I feel like sometimes he likes to arbitrate his place in NBA history and Twitter Tell likes to sort it. of dunk on him. That said, yeah. like, one of the most compelling think, chapters in the book... Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. One of the most compelling chapters in the book, I, I think, is when you get into that Game 7... You know, uh, you know where he stares down LeBron, and LeBron, you know, young but coming off a finals trip, stares down LeBron, outguns him, and then I wonder how much does doing something like that color your perception, and for the rest of your life, sort of say, you know, to justify some of Paul Paul's thoughts on himself, say like, yeah, I stared down LeBron once and beat him. I mean, like, do you think that that run in 08, and then finishing that run off with Kobe, may have just elevated his own sense of self, but in a way that is somewhat justifiable when you step back from it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Uh, you do that in that run. So in his mind, you know, they had been on the outside looking in so many times, so many years. And I think you also have to keep in mind, like NBA players, some of them are, 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 are candid enough to tell you how much these, these awards mean to them and how much the place, their place on all NBA teams, how much that means to them. Like Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal goes on Twitter and says, wait a minute, how am I not on an all-NBA team? This, this is outrageous. <laughs> because it's like, it, it, it's some credibility. Whether we want to admit it or not, it, it allows them to have some type of standing among their peers. So Paul Pierce had been Bradley Beal before that finals run. He had a great 06-07 season. He did everything the coaches asked him to do. He was left off the all-NBA team. So it was almost like he's hearing these conversations about, hey, who's the top 10 player in the league? Who's the top 15? He's not in those conversations, so he's mad about that. So they are able to, uh, in the second round, beat the best player in the league or, or in the debate with LeBron James. They beat the team of, of that era, the Pistons. They knocked them out. And then they beat either the second best or best, your pick, player in the NBA Finals, uh, and Kobe Bryant. So he said, look at me now. Remember me? I'm a, I'm a great player. Now, he is a great player. He is a top five player, in my opinion, in Celtics history. The reason it goes too far, though, is, yeah, you were able to do that against Kobe and LeBron. But LeBron has four titles. <laughs> and like, so he's done that. Like, 
LeBron did that against a 73-win team. He got that title against a 73-win <laughs> team. Kobe had five of them. So they were right. able to do this consistently over and over. And I think for the Celtics and for Pierce to get that love that he's looking for, they probably needed one more. They probably needed one more championship, maybe win that in 2010 against the Lakers, because then you can come back and say, oh, you think you think Kobe's the best? All right. So in 2010, they beat uh, in, in the East. They beat the number one team in the East again. That was LeBron's last year in Cleveland, the first time. And then they lost to the Lakers in 2010. So if you're able to do that twice, hey, twice, I got championships by going through LeBron and Kobe, and I was a two-time finals MVP, give me my props, then you'd have to do it. And you'd have to say, okay, you got a case. Yeah, and you know, I we started this talking about basketball books. It does remind me a bit of breaks of the game because if KG doesn't get hurt, they're on such a tear the following season. They get back to the finals and arguably should have won um, and had many chances to. So they they are reminiscent of, of so many great teams that have a window where you say, well, a couple bounces this way or this way, and that's a three-peat, and that's an all-time you know dynasty that people are talking about. That's right. And, and by the way, I just got to say, man, I feel like you're trolling me with the breaks of the game mentioned because, you know, I think that is the best. <laughs> that is the best basketball book ever written i'm sorry i will argue breaks of the game I'll, you, know, you give me breaks of the game and you can have the field and i will make a way to, to say that, that <laughs> the breaks of the game comes out number one but it's just so good it's timeless man hey brad that book's like what 40 something years old like 43 years old something like that yeah and and, there, and and i know some of the numbers some it's funny looking back at some of the numbers like how much you know hey this guy made Four hundred thousand dollars, you know, and that's supposed to be a big number. Yeah. So those numbers don't don't match up, but the storytelling and the narrative and the discussion uh, is just so great. Um, and, and that was part of really that was part of my fear of, of, of looking <laughs> at something that great and like, man, what am I, what am I gonna bring to an arena that that David Halberstam already already bounced the ball on, uh, you know, bounced the ball in there a few times. So. What am I supposed to do? What, what kind of shot am I going to put up? Well, look, in 20 years, someone will be saying uh, on whatever medium exists to do interviews, we'll be saying, uh, well, it's reminiscent of the big three, you know, so I'm not trolling you at all. I, 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 I love this I'll book. Just and, you. But yeah, if that yeah. happens, if that happens, if somebody says that in 20 years, I'm going to tell that person who's listening to you right now, hey, you know, contact me, contact me, and I will tell you why you should do it, why you should go forward with it. And I'll say this. Uh, I had the privilege many years ago uh, before his death, I had the privilege of just having a brief conversation with David Halberstam. He signed a book for me. Uh, the sweetest guy. I mean, a brilliant yeah. guy, but really gracious, uh, very generous uh, with his wisdom and with his time. And so uh, in, in all seriousness, I feel like if somebody's out there going what I was going through, what I was going through, uh, I would say, just do it. I mean, really, I mean, that, the answer is do the work. Yeah. If you are in, your, in, in some kind of rut, uh, oh, I don't know where to start, start. Uh, I don't know if I should do it, do it. And, and, and you'll be better off for it. And we'll be better off for it because we will have uh, received your work. No, that's, uh, that's great advice. Let me close with this. The, we talked about this team's legacy a little bit, but I, I'm almost thinking beyond NBA culture, just culturally. I mean, Boston has been the epicenter of 
sports on the national scene for the last, you know, decade and a half. And this was, they've had so many iconic teams um, that have taken on national significance, you know, culturally, pop culturally, whatever you want to, you know, whatever framework you want to give it. What do you think is the way that this team will be remembered? Yeah, I think it's, you know what, in Boston, I think it will be a team that is remembered as bringing a lot of different strands together uh, across many generations. And what do I mean by that? Well, I, t- I told you, you know, it's uh, the organization, we know how many championships the Celtics have won. But I would say each of those teams, you know, the 60s teams, the 60s champions with Bill Russell, okay, that's one type of style of basketball. And, and the 70s, when you had Dave Collins, and John Havlicek, and Jojo White, that's a different style. The, the original big three with Larry and Kevin uh, and, 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 uh, and Chief, that's a different style too. This team could really uh, could hold its own among any era of Celtics basketball. And I think every all those guys were still around. Like Bill Russell, he loved the way this team this team played, and 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 Havlicek was still alive. And JoJo, they loved watching this team play. So that's one thing. The other thing is some of the phrases and some of the personalities will stand out. Uh, forever in Celtics history. Like if you walk around downtown Boston and you say, anything is possible. Everybody <laughs> right. knows, they know what that means. You mentioned Ubuntu earlier. People in Boston know what Ubuntu means. Uh, so like there were some certain things uh, that this this team did that just will resonate with Boston fans for a long time. Well, hey, look, the book was great. I, I really appreciate you coming on and giving me so much time to talk about it. And, and congratulations, my friend. Uh, you know, you ripped the bandit off the basketball. Let's look forward to you know, five or ten more uh, more NBA books to come. Oh, well, you know what, Brad? Maybe what's next is might be something else. Might be, well, if it's music, what if I do like a book hey. on what if I do like a Stevie Wonder book? Oh man, Stevie Wonder, <laughs> so, I'll take it. I, I tell you what, is as we go, is there any last like pop culture that's gotten you through the pandemic hardships here? Uh, well, I mentioned one of them, uh, Stevie. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, I've been I've been listening to that, going to revisit some of my music. I don't know, maybe it's just the time, you know. Maybe it, it just makes you makes us all just kind of think about what we've been through in our lives and, and like some of our favorite things, you know, over the years. So yeah. I have, I have revisited all of my music, not just, I've learned a lot of current, uh, some current music too, uh, some new additions, but my old school stuff, like my, my Stevie, my earth, wind and fire, um, Prince. I even found a, I actually found an album a Ziggy Marley album. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I used to get down with, uh, and still, I, I love them. Living Color, um, Cult of Personality, and Middleman, and Desperate People from that Vivid album. And then, so getting to that Vivid album took me uh, to the um, to the Times Up album. And then Times Up took me to Stain. You know, so yeah. I just been into like a lot of a lot of good music. A friend of mine. Uh, wrote another book and he was saying at the end of it, uh, it just made him think of the Beatles. So then I start, start getting into the Beatles again. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is what the pandemic has done for me. It's really <laughs> deep in my appreciation of music. I'm a defender of Stevie's 
uh, work in the 80s. I'm an ardent defender of that era, and my co-host who can't be here tonight, but uh, he tells me I'm crazy. Where, where do you stand on on like you know part-time uh, lover, Stevie? Okay, okay. So this is where I stand on that. Okay, I'm not going to defend that. I can't defend that. See, I'm with your co-host. <laughs> I'm not going to defend that. But this is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to say on it. Thank you, Stevie, for that. That what you did in the 70s allows <laughs> you to do whatever you want going forward. I mean, like Brad, you cannot, you cannot tell me that there, there are five other artists who could be like, okay, yeah, I'll give them a talking book. I'll give them a, a, a music of my mind. I'll give them uh, songs in the key of life. I'll give them a fulfilling this full finale. Oh, in the same decade. Yeah. That's insane. So if you can do that, and, and, and I'm hating on Stevie too, because I think um, I think he did songs in the key of life. He was in his 20s. He may, he may have been like 25, 26. Yeah. You can't do That's just not fair. That's not fair to be that smart, that talented to produce that album double album by the way in your mid-20s so stevie wonder whatever like the 80s stuff okay it's i guess technically hotter than july was 1980 right it like right around there yeah so i'll defend hotter than july but then after that uh yeah i don't know I think we use the same logic to defend Stevie's 80, 80s catalog as we did to defend Paul Pierce's tweets about his legacy. Like, hey, you had a you did it you did it early, so we'll we'll deal with whatever you you, you give us. That's later. right, <laughs> that's right. But but hey, but Paul Pierce can't see Stevie. Paul no. Pierce, the basketball <laughs> Stevie is the music, and like Paul Pierce can now. If Paul Pierce were to basketball with Stevie is to music, Paul Pierce would be the best player of all time. <laughs> well, Michael, you've been so generous your time. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, and uh, just wishing you nothing but the best here with. With the, with the book and uh, with everything else in the pandemic, my friend. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it.